This is the business of sports. Should Major League Baseball shorten up the season? All things even. Are you buying NBA or are you buying NFL? Michael Barr. The NCAA and a whole lot of money going on. Scott Soshnick. Very basic math here. More bidders means more money. And the leaders in the sports industry. Time to bring in our guest, Hal Steinbrenner. National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman. Patriots President Jonathan Kraft. Peter Huber, part owner of the Golden State Warriors. Boston Red Sox CEO Sam Kennedy. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, a conversation with the David B. Falk Endowed Professor of Sport Management at Syracuse University, Rick Burton, on the international expansion of U.S. sports. 2021 is going to be a tipping point year when the NFL actually determines whether or not it can shift from analog networks to the companies like Amazon or YouTube or Twitter, Facebook, Google. I think we're going to see a huge shift here. More with Rick Burton coming up, but first let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Evan Novi-Williams, just like every other week. Welcome, Evan. Thank you, guys. Barr, what's our first topic? Right. I do like this topic. We're talking about You European like all soccer. our topics. What no, do you mean? Of course. Even the serious ones. Even the serious ones. But this one, European soccer, the Super League, and some people are saying, nuh-uh. Some people are saying, nuh-uh, like the leagues that need these teams to have a league. <laughs> but we've seen for years now sort of that revenue-sharing idea and disparity of how do the big clubs get along and they make so much more than the smaller clubs and they need to share more revenue and all that. But the top clubs are the top clubs and these are the draws. Eben, if you're watching Saturday morning, your NBCSN. When I'm watching Saturday when you, I'm morning. sorry, when you're. If you see it's Wigan versus Sunderland. Oh, baby. Are you hanging around <laughs> or you need or you need Chelsea, you need Man U, Man City, Liverpool, Arsenal. Do you only stay for the top team? Yeah, but that, you know the casual fan knows those brands. I, I, I watch I'm agnostic mostly, but you're right. The mo- most fans really want, you know, and, and there's the, the Super League, the proposal here, uh, 16 clubs. You know, it's the, the five big ones from the EPL plus, you know, your Bayern Munich, your Barcelona, your Real Madrid, your, your Juventus, Paris Saint-Germain. Yes, there, there's no question that there are clubs that hold up a vast majority of the interest for their national leagues but and and this is the argument that fifa has made recently it's all part of a much bigger structure right within i think a lot of american sports fans don't realize this but international soccer at the club level is very structured you know it's structured all the way through the ninth division in in england all the way up through the english premier league Mm -hmm. and within fifa there are you know the governing bodies and then there's the confederations and then there's the leagues it's all structured your your membership in fifa is even kind of contingent on the structure of the domestic league within your country um and fifa has said this this week that teams that play in this super league if it were to happen um players that play on those teams might not be eligible for international soccer, and that would be, I think, a uh, hollow, something more hollow for them threat. To you know how much money? You know what it would be out there if you had all the, the top teams in, in the European leagues get together and just. By the yeah. way, the for our investors out there who listen to this from Rain and KKR, etc., uh, do this with the NCAA. <laughs> wow, he's, lo- those, he's lobbying for work. Find those him. top 22 schools and uh, break away the football schools. What else we got, Bar? Next topic, bids due for Fox's regional sports networks. Now, we put in a bid, but they told us, get out of here, ragamuffins. They bid us adieu. Yeah, they, they <laughs> bid <laughs> us adieu is what <laughs> they happened. Bid, they bid us adieu. <laughs> but here, I mean, here we go. Now we're into the, let's look under the covers a little bit, right? What, what are we seeing here? We're getting a peek as to 
what's for sale, some of the numbers behind what these RSNs generate. Again, hyper-local. If you want to look like baseball, they have a lot of things, but they have a lot of baseball on these networks. They, they are hyper, hyper-local, big audiences local, price tag of about $20 billion. And because this is all part of the Fox sale to Disney, and now they Disney has to divest itself of these RSNs to get approval. Um, you got private equity. You've got media companies. You've got Ice Cube sh- showing some interest know, in this. Cool, but it'd be very interesting to see where the opening bids come and then where it goes from here. Many people think by the end, including all the bankers we've spoken to and we've said on this show, that in the end, it winds up back at Fox anyway. Let's move on now. Are we talking about the Floyd Mayweather fight? Oh, my God. Evan, Evan wanted to talk Mayweather. I just think we need to close the loop on this. We, we rightfully threw some cold water on this potential New Year's Eve fight a couple days ago. Uh, maybe we didn't throw enough cold water on it. It sounds like the fight might not even happen at all. Oh, Floyd Mayweather participated in a press conference in Japan earlier this week. And then the day after on his Instagram account, essentially contradicted everything that happened at the press conference claiming that he never agreed to a real fight, that it was going to be an exhibition, a three-round, nine-minute thing that was never supposed to be on TV just for rich people that wanted to watch it live. Uh, what a mess this is. Seems fair to say that this is probably not happening, and if it does happen, it's not happening in the in the way that maybe a lot of people first thought when uh, when it was announced. Another night on the bar social calendar just opened up. Well, boo to the hiss. Yeah, 4 a.m. on New Year's Day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gotta find something else to do. I was warming up for Texas Southern versus, I don't know, some other, I'm sorry, I couldn't come up with another. Bowl? Some yeah. directional state, yeah. Let's get to this week's interview now with Rick Burton. He's the David B. Falk Endowed Professor of Sports Management at Syracuse University, my alma mater. He serves as the school's faculty athlete representative to the NCAA and was the chief marketing officer for the U.S. Olympic Committee at the Beijing 2008 Summer Olympics. And Mr. Rick, welcome to the program. You're at the Falk College of Sport. What's the most important thing that students in your program are being taught? I think the important thing is I would like to believe is is not only leadership, but being able to, it's the old Wayne Gretzky line, to skate where the puck is going. And and I think that you've got to be looking at the the universe of sport, and and it's pretty large and it's pretty fragmented, and understand how media is changing. You've got to understand you know where sports leagues are going, the growth of esports. Uh, I think there's so many nuances right now, and then at the same time, I think you've got to be picking up you know skills that are going to be desired inside our industry. And whether that's marketing or finance, one of the big areas that we're really pioneering is in sport analytics. And and I think it's giving a lot of our students a, a really great entree into the sports industry. It's these days, if you don't have your MBA, you can't work in the front office of a team. Uh, it seems that way, and I, I think we're really attracting incredibly intelligent kids that are looking to blend kind of the, the science and the analytics of sport uh, with their career aspirations. I have to ask, back in your day, from 2003 to 2007, you were the commissioner of Australia's Sydney-based National Basketball League, and more importantly, a two-continent league with teams in Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore. What was that like, and can you bring it to us today about what it means to have the global game and what it means for to have that global impact in sports? Well, it was probably one of the best experiences of my life. Australia is just a great place to live, and the people there are just so fantastic to work with. But I think what we were looking at is almost to a degree the UEFA model, you know, the, what you have in Europe with 
the EPL and the Bundesliga and all the great teams that are all over Europe. And when you start to think about Australia, New Zealand, and Asia, you know, you start to get to about uh, half the world's population is on that side of the planet. And I think that there was an opportunity, and we started to build out uh, how we could view our product. And, and I've long been somebody saying, you know, it's a global economy and it's a digital economy. And, and I think that those leagues, and the NBA is probably the greatest example of that, uh, those leagues that understand how to transmit their content digitally are going to be ahead of the curve. And I think that's where we were starting to go before I came back to the States. Let's be honest, Rick, though, in bar, you know what he really learned and what he really liked? That, that's where he really got a fond appreciation for something called a hard salary cap. <laughs> Before that, Rick, I don't remember you saying we've got to have hard salary caps, but after your job as commissioner, that's what you were always preaching. We actually had a really unique approach to parity, and you know how in the United States we use the draft system. Uh, over there we created a point system, and every player in the league was rated, and teams weren't allowed to go over a certain point cap uh, let alone a salary cap. So it was an interesting way of trying to ensure that you didn't get what you're seeing a lot of in the NBA right now is uh, teams that are, are so likely to win and teams that are so likely to lose. But I joked in class the other day that tanking is now the American way. So, uh, you know, tank your way to success. Uh, I just feel bad for the fans of those teams who have to go through two or three years of no chance at all of their team have being competitive You're being at all. generous, two or three. The process yeah. was five or six. Yeah, well, I agree. Rick, to tie back, I mean, the, the experience you had overseas and, and the stuff that you tell your students, how much is, is sports now? Are there any domestic-only sports anymore? Or how, how much is the, is the international piece of, of what all these sports are doing uh, coming up in class? Well, it's, it's a trap question in the sense that it's easy to suggest that both baseball and, and American football, just for international listeners who think of football as being soccer, but that American baseball and American football uh, have a challenge in front of them, which is how to make their product more global. Uh, the NFL is doing more in London, doing more in uh, Mexico City, I think, uh, the NBA is I mean, far ahead of that curve, but basketball is much more of a global game. I think the National Hockey League's really got to think about how to get into Northern Europe more aggressively, and I think they're doing some of that, but um, the games that we have domestically supported and that relied at least initially on attendance and then initially on uh, U.S. TV broadcast contracts, 2021 is going to be a tipping point year when the NFL actually determines whether or not it can shift from you know, analog networks like NBC, CBS, even if we now accept them as digital networks, um, to the companies like Amazon or YouTube or Twitter, uh, Facebook, Google. Um, I think we're going to see a huge shift here. And what will be interesting is whether or not those global organizations will pay for leagues that may only have domestic appeal. We are chatting with Rick Burton, and I say this, Rick, with, with all love for the man. Of, you're the David B. Falk Endowed Professor at the David B. Falk, David B. Falk School of Sports, uh, Sports Administration Management at Syracuse. Um, and if you ever dealt with David, you know probably why it's called all those things, but we, we do love the guy. Um, you, part of your background is also now in college sports. You're the athlete representative to the NCAA and the ACC how would you determine where are we? Where is the NCAA? You see the litigation, you see sort of the, the, the trial. Where is college sports? What's the right word for it? 
Well, I think it's it's massively appealing, uh, but it's also massively under attack from a lot of directions. And I think the the funny thing is is that we we make the NCAA out to be the evil entity, and I'm not sure that that's fair. Um, the NCAA is an association of institutions, and I'm not trying to take them off the hot seat. But we have to understand that the presidents of the universities are the ones that determine the direction that the NCAA goes. Um, and the presidents of these universities own the outcome of the NCAA. And while much is asked of Mark Emmert to steer this association, uh, we are the members and we are the voting members that determine how the association runs. Um, I'm bullish on what college sports represents in America. I think it's hugely relevant at the D1, 2, and 3 levels. Um, but I think it faces its challenges both in court and both in what it does on the field. And, you know, every time we have a scandal, uh, a lot of people, the only soundbite you can go to is that the NCAA needs to do something. Um, but if we were going to talk about the Michigan State situation, if we were going to talk about Maryland, these are incidences that start locally, and then we tend to blame nationally. Uh, I think if, if you look at other countries of the world, they would give their eye teeth to have a farm system like the American NCAA, which feeds the U.S. Olympic Committee and feeds pro basketball, pro baseball, pro hockey, pro football. Um, it's a great little farm system that's also providing student-athletes with really high-quality educations. So accepting that college sports is a tremendous asset and, and is not going away, but also that the current model, both I think at the NCAA level and at the institution level, uh, needs some tweaking, where do you see the change coming? I mean, it certainly feels as though we're heading towards uh, a, a massive alteration of some sort. I don't know what it is, but I'm curious as to what you see kind of this momentum leading towards in college sports. Well, I think there's a, there's a loud chorus of voices that believe that the student-athletes are being taken advantage of, that they're not mm -hmm. getting what they could get or what they should get. Um, I was just down at Clemson's football facility the other day. I happened to see Dabo Sweeney. And, Is that the one with the slide um, in it? Yeah, the one with the slide. And um, those guys are living better than any of us in terms of having the facilities available to them uh, receiving the you know full scholarships, room and board, uh, tuition, you know food, clothing, uh, medical care, uh, and and while many of them, in fact most of them, will not go on to play professionally, the quality of life that they are living is possibly the best quality of life that they may ever have. Now that's not as an apologist for how good some schools have it or create it for their athletes, because there's still someone else out there saying, well. A coach is making seven million dollars a year, or the university is building, you know, more buildings because it's bringing in all this money. Um, I think you're going to see the pendulum switch, shift, slide, swing uh, towards providing, I think, even more opportunities for the student athletes. But we tend to only talk about football and basketball, and you've got to swing those opportunities for the cross-country runners and the women's field hockey players and the women's ice hockey players, they have to be the beneficiaries of any of the changes that I think are possibly coming. I love going through your bio. One of the things that you've done, you still do it now, you're a motivational speaker, and your recent engagements included 
Chip Ganassi Racing, NASCAR and Indy Racing. Oh, uh, here goes Barr and NASCAR. You, you shouldn't have told me here that. Here goes Barr. <laughs> Thank God there's no Detroit on the resume. <laughs> Someone said what my favorite sports, number two is football, number one is racing. So I've, I've been a diehard racing fan. You know, you know what they say in the South. It's, it's number two is football, number one is spring football. <laughs> Especially in Alabama. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I bless your heart. It's it's good to hear a, a, a racing fan just on the on the radio or on any form of media because uh, I don't think it gets nearly as much as it could. Hey, you don't think? Wait, hold on, Rick. You, I always say this stuff is a meritocracy. Like, when, especially when you talk about how much these leagues. Like, I hear the WNBA players saying we deserve more money, and NASCAR says more people should watch. Is it not the purest form of meritocracy, the sport itself, if you can play, you can play, as David Stern used to say, and with eyeballs? If people want to watch it, they'll watch it. And, and I think they do, but I don't know that the mainstream media, I mean, if you look at NASCAR's numbers or Formula One's numbers worldwide, I mean, I think that's where the American um, process is sometimes very narrow. The domestic scene does not really understand how big certain sports are worldwide. F1 probably has more eyeballs um, than a lot of our mainstream sports here in America. They just don't race here in the United States very often. Uh, And so the meritocracy is one that we kind of look at a lot of times with an American set of eyes. You just hit the nail on the head because here it was like, okay, eh, F1, that's nice. Go over and see the German Grand Prix. All of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh, it's you know, it's huge. And I, I just wonder why can't we move it on a global level? And that's even with NASCAR. Why can't that happen? Well, it's a good question, and I think the answer is going to be in social media that you've got to take those drivers and you've got to make them relevant, so that when you have a Spanish or an Italian or an Australian driver in NASCAR, um, that you're really playing that out across the globe. But that being said, a lot of the racers in the world don't want to just turn left. Uh, they don't want to go in circles. And so, you know, the Australian equivalent of NASCAR is much more of a road course type thing. Uh, but that aside, you know the NASCAR numbers. How many people are watching or following NASCAR compared to how many are following MLS or the NHL or, or even to some degree Major League Baseball in terms of ratings? Um, baseball is a concern for me. I'm teaching an honors baseball class, the role of baseball in American culture right now at Syracuse. And, and I'm, I'm concerned for a game that I think has been such a touchstone in the, in the American public or for the American public over the last 150 years um, that the game is starting to really lose a lot of its resonance. We are speaking with Rick Burton, uh, sports uh, management professor at Syracuse University. Uh, and in a former life, Rick, you, you ran marketing for the USOC during the 2008 Olympics in, in Beijing. One of the biggest Olympic stories, man, that I can think of over the past couple of years came out very recently. The USOC took the early steps towards decertifying USA Gymnastics in the wake of uh, that horrible sexual assault scandal with Larry Nassar. Um, for folks out there who, who maybe saw the news but don't fully comprehend exactly how big a step this is, can you put it in context? How big a deal is it that the USOC is taking this step with gymnastics? Well, it's a major deal, and, and I think it's because a lot of people don't understand what the USOC does and how the national governing bodies, the NGBs, dial into the USOC. Uh, I think for that organization in Colorado Springs to decertify the national body for a sport that has an awful lot of participants 
uh, and to say if they go through with it, you're going to need to restructure and become a whole new organization. You know, you're going to have to become America Gymnastics. Um, it's going to be disruptive like you wouldn't believe inside uh, the gymnastics world, and it's going to affect potentially the pipeline of America turning out the next Simone Biles, you know, of America having gold medal winners in gymnastics in future Olympics. We talked about this on the podcast earlier this week, but when you think about marketing for the games, flash forward to 2020 in Tokyo, how does America approach kind of marketing gymnastics, knowing that, you know, what's going on in the background? Yeah, without being a wise guy, I think they're going to have to be very, very careful uh, because I think every time they try to suggest that something good has been done, that they've put in new leadership, they're going to need to be certain that they've got everything right. Um, they, gymnastics just installed a new president or chair, uh, and she lasted, I think, less than a month uh, because she put something out on Twitter that was immediately deemed offensive. Mary how was how, yeah. how that background search, right? And And... You know, the background search could have been complete, and it could have been uh, everything that you would have wanted in a hiring process, but what wasn't understood was how raw the wounds are that we associate right now with USA Gymnastics, and and anyone who's involved with that organization uh, is going to have to be incredibly astute, uh, and I think very, very nimble. Um, And if the USOC goes through with what I think is a very real threat, um, I think you're going to have a, a whole new approach to how gymnastics and maybe a lot of youth sport in America is going to be addressed going forward. When you look at the summer slate of games, gymnastics is one of, if not the most popular, I would think, from a from an American TV viewership perspective. Um, how does this affect, or does it affect NBC, the rights holder that's carrying these games in, in 2020? I think it's a really insightful question, and I think it does affect them. I mean, the two traditional sports that carried the Olympics year in and year out, except they never were annual events, uh, was figure skating in the winter games and women's gymnastics in the in the summer games. I think basketball has come on recently, and, and the men's basketball has probably become the more watched uh, or more highly watched, uh, depending on how you understand prime time and day parts. Uh, but I think this is a major issue for uh, NBC, particularly if they don't have great female gymnasts from the U.S. in 2020. We are chatting with Rick Burton, the David B. Falk Endowed Professor at Syracuse University. And Rick, on the macro scale, what about the Olympics in general? Yeah, cities are pulling out. They, they're withdrawing bids. More and more seem to be saying it's just not worth it for us to invest all these dollars and perhaps have white elephants. How concerned is the IOC, or how, sh- how concerned should it be? Well, you teed me up for a, a perfect shout-out for Sports Business Journal. I just did, Scott, a um, co-authored a column that's in this week's issue of Sports Business Journal on that very topic. And when 2026 was announced, the bid process had seven cities, and they're down to about two and a half right now and, and headed towards two. Um, because if Calgary pulls out, uh, I think you'll be left with Stockholm and, and a two-city bid from Italy. And uh, you're down to essentially what happened with uh, Paris and L.A. for 2024 and 2028. Um, I think the IOC's really got to look at the bidding process, uh, the number of events, the number of days, the infrastructure that they require. I mean, these days, to want to host the Olympics means that you have to fix your own infrastructure. You have to build better highways. You have to get rid of pollution. You have to make sure there aren't any stray dogs on the street. 
Um, you're not just building, you know, a ski jump. You're not just building dormitories to house athletes. Uh, you're actually having to reinvent your city. Um, I think Casey Wasserman's going to do a phenomenal job in L.A., but the IOC's got a challenge on its hands, and I think they're going to have to really look at why cities aren't willing to take on those costs. Casey's a friend of the program. He's appeared. I think the biggest advantage, obviously, for L.A. was the fact that all of the edifices were there. There was nothing really to build. Yeah, and I think you've got to give a shout-out to Peter Uberoth back in 1984 and the fact that Uberoth proved that the games could be put on at no real cost to the taxpayer, um, that they would get everything essentially handled privately. And it's what's made the U.S. so valuable to the Olympic movement, to the IOC, is that when the Americans put their minds to it, without me being jingoistic, they've proven that they can make the Olympic movement, the Olympic Games, um, not be a stressor on the community. Uh, but in most other places, when you look at Athens and what's left of that of the facilities that were built for 2004, you look at Rio right now, um, the Olympic Games uh, ultimately leave a legacy that is nothing like what's promised seven years in advance of the Games. Uh, and two years after, uh, a lot of the infrastructure lays in ruins. I go back to my original statement. I've said this several times. Then why not just have one city that sets up the summer games and one city that sets up the winter games, and that would be much more cost-effective than everybody trying to bid and everybody cheers, yay, we got the Olympics, but it costs a lot of money to put it on. Well, I think if you look back historically, ancient games are held in Olympia and only in Olympia, and they work, and they work for like 800 years, so um, (laughs) there's a logic to what you're saying. But the U.S. or the IOC makes money uh, off of these cities bidding. Um, so you have to look at revenue generation for the IOC as it's currently structured. And then you have to look at whether or not it would create an advantage for a particular country or a particular region if the games are always in one setting. But let's take your idea and look at an idea where you can kind of say, kind of like the masters, the majors in um, tennis, can you have an Australian setting, a French setting, an English, an American, throw in an an Asian setting, an African setting, you could get this down to four to six permanent sites uh, and then rotate the games uh, regionally. And I think that that's one of the solutions we put, Norma Riley and myself, in this uh, current issue of Sports Business Journal. Rick Burton, the David B. Falk Endowed Professor of Sport Management in Syracuse University's David B. Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamics. I want to get all that in. <laughs> Thank you very That's much, That's what I sir. mean about David, so wanting David in there twice. <laughs> uh, David's a great guy. We and, love and I'm, David. I'm blessed to be uh, a representative of, of David's kindness to Syracuse. He's a, he's a great guy. Rick, thanks so much, pal. <laughs> Thank you. Guys, thanks so much. You know what? He knows NASCAR. He knows racing. <laughs> I'm so proud. Bar's taking away his NASCAR. I love it. I, I, love lo- it. I love his take on it. It's like, And he said, look, we need more people like us to talk about racing. And and let's be honest. There is a problem, uh, with especially with NASCAR, because they got to fill the stands. They got to get more people tuned in to see NASCAR racing. And, and I think he had a point about it. Bar no joke, I've known Rick for about 20 years now. And my takeaway is that he's got such a, a worldview and a circular view of the industry. He was a former sports writer. Then he was in academia. 
then the, the chief marketing officer. He worked in marketing. Now he's in education. He was the commissioner of a league in Australia. You don't find many people who can come at the vision of sport from all those angles. He knows what it's like to be management. He knows what it's like to be uh, on, on the academic side. He knows what it's like to be sort of that, that governing body. And you just don't find that on so many resumes, which is why when I have a question and I, and I like to bounce things off smart people, Burton is always one of my calls. My takeaway, uh, this David B. Falk character seems pretty accomplished. Ah, huh? uh, David How B. Falk. How about that? He's got, he's got the endowed professorship. He's got the school. Who is he? You're kidding, right? No, I'm serious. You're kidding. Dead Who serious. is David Falk? I didn't want to say it in front of Rick, but I'm curious. David Falk, former agent of Michael Jordan, built the Jordan oh, Empire. Oh, that Falk. David Falk. Alonzo Mourning, wow. Dikembe I, Mutombo. I thought he was a journalist. The most powerful <laughs> agent. And in, in, in when he was really at his time during the late 80s, 90s, David was the most powerful person in basketball, single-handedly had the ability to shape the balance of power in the NBA. Sorry, David, I, I do know who you are. Uh, second takeaway real quick, uh, this U.S. gymnastics situation uh, is a much bigger deal than I think some people uh, out there are giving it credit for. Uh, this is going to strain a lot about the 2020 Olympics. You heard Rick talk about it, especially for rights holder NBC. It is unclear what the U.S. involvement in the 2020 Olympics is going to look like from a gymnastics perspective. There will be a team there, uh, but this is routinely one of the most popular, if not the most popular, games at, at the summer games from a U.S. perspective. Um, and, and now that the, the, the U.S. gymnastics group may be decertified, may not be, there's a dark cloud hanging over the sport right now, uh, and there's not that much time to figure it out before uh, before qualifiers and before the Olympics themselves. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. And actually, I'm going to give you two. Four and 40. Youngest obviously, and oldest NASCAR champion ever. Yeah, obviously not one we've discussed ahead of time. Actually, uh, now you 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 said NASCAR. You're on well, the right track. Well, that uh, was a given, uh, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, th- that, what has happened is that if you follow what happened to Kevin Harvick, uh, he won recently, the, the most recent race. Uh, he won at Texas. And then in the post-race inspection, there was a problem with the spoiler. So what they did, it took away 40 driver points. It took away the berth for that win for the race, which means it's going to kind of mess them up for trying to get into the championship. Then they suspended the crew chief for the rest of the year. I mean, this this is a big mess, all because the spoiler did not make the inspection. If you say so. How, how big of a name is Kevin Harvick? I, I've heard it, of it. That's a total. That's is a he name. like a top no, five draw? Is, is he huge. a top ten draw? Is this, he... No, top five. So does this go under gotcha. bar? Does this go under the if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying? I, boy, I want to oh. say something. I, I will say that the Stuart Haas organization did not appeal this. Okay. So, so, that, so what? My, my takeaway from that is sort of they did it? I'm asking, yeah, is that, is that, mean, is that, would that be someone's takeaway? Get, yeah, your, get I, your spoilers in order, folks. Yeah. Come on. This is, this is NASCAR, you know? Okay. Oh, man. 
You have been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time. Plus, online, it's an Apple podcast. You can catch that Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays on Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. And I'm Scott Soshnick. You can follow me on Twitter at Soshnick. Well, thanks for joining us, and please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports, Bloomberg Radio around the world, and online where you can find our podcast.